Great. So thanks for joining us for the next episode of the Keep It Renal podcast. Uh, in this episode, you're going to hear my interview with Sean Griffin, who works at University Hospital Wales in Cardiff. Um, and during this podcast, I'm going to talk to her a little bit about herself and her career, um, but also a study that she's running called ITOPS, looking at ways they can limit the impact pre-sensitization might have on the success of a transplant. Now, don't worry if those words don't mean a lot to you right now. They certainly didn't mean a lot to me before I spoke to Sean about them, but hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll have a good grasp on what the ITOPS study is. During this interview, you will hear us talk a little bit about a technology called CRISPR. Um, And without getting into too much detail about what CRISPR is, basically, it's like the latest way of performing genetic manipulation. Um, So basically think about it as a pair of molecular scissors that you can just go in and snip and change a piece of DNA. Um, To give you more detail on that, we'll probably take a whole podcast, and that's something I might consider doing if there's enough interest in me doing that. Anyway, less of me waffling on and on and on. Let's listen to Sean. Hope you enjoy. Um, so I just wonder if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Sean Griffin. I'm a nephrologist in Cardiff. Um, my interest is diseases that affect the kidney as a consequence of activation of their immune system. So either inflammation due to a diagnosis such as glomerulonephritis uh, or in transplantation. Okay, cool. And how did you get here? I know some people don't really like the word journey, um, but was this what you always wanted? Did you sort of happen upon it? Uh, So having trained in medicine, um, the choice of a specialty became very obvious when I became a nephrologist as as an SHO. So it took quite a junior level. Um, Prior to that, I thought I was going to do haematology, so study um, people with with blood conditions Um, and the appeal of that was marrying up the clinical situation with the laboratory results and putting stories together Um, and in fact nephrology is is very similar in that it involves both laboratory and clinical interpretation Um, and when I did my first um, job in nephrology at the Royal London Hospital um, I was um, really struck by the impacts of kidney disease on the lives of people um, and the difference that we could make by improving their treatment and offering them transplantation. Um, I was also lucky to work there with very inspirational um, registrars and consultants who were very committed, passionate about providing care to their patients and I, I converted to the specialty within days. So so that's how I came into nephrology. So it, really, it really bit you then. It really mm, took mm, your interest. Mm. And I can't I can't imagine being in a different specialty. That's awesome. That's nice to get that sort of satisfaction. Like not, not many people sort of get that, so that was really special. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for me it was it I mean it was it, it was absolutely the right the right specialty for me to go into. Um so then I com- continued my clinical training as a registrar. Um, I I did a PhD in basic science in Cambridge and then I did a postdoc again in basic science in, in Seattle um, so, so it was good to have the travelling nice opportunities most, most medics sort of get sucked back into the clinic quite quickly after doing their PhD so it's nice you got that rotation as a postdoc Yes, yes, yes it, yes it was um, and I also managed to spend a bit of time in Australia so I had quite a um, sort of international experience What sort of things were you looking at? When you were in the lab, 
So, so I, <laughs> this will resonate with you. I became a podocyte doctor. Nice to hear. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I was looking at um, cell cycle control in podocytes, so their ability to, to divide and proliferate um, and how different proteins influence that or apoptosis and cell death. Um, and we showed the, the, the death of the podocyte and the loss of them from within the glomerulus led on to um, scarring and progressive kidney disease. So I, I was interested in mechanisms of that as it related to cell cycle. It's going to be quite hard for me to keep this on the track that it's supposed to be on now, knowing that. But yeah, I'll try my best. <laughs> cool. So then... So finished my clinical training and, and then there was the, the dilemma of whether to try for a higher research award or to go into a full-time clinical post. Um, and and at, at, at that point, the the right thing for me, both professionally and from a, a family perspective, was to have the security um, of, a, of a permanent clinical post. Um, so I applied for um, a couple of jobs around the country and ended up in Cardiff. Cool. So um, what sort of splits do you get now? That- it's an NHS position um and i have i have two research sessions two half days um one for being the r&d director for the directorate and one for being the renal specialty lead for wales right that's not a lot of time for you to get what needs to get done then i imagine no it would be nice to have (laughs) one yeah um so i think i think everybody says that about every aspect of their job that they'd like to to do more on and there's just not enough hours in the day yeah yeah um, so the other day we were talking to um, a patient who had had a transplant um, and she was quite keen to stress and sort of get the message out there that it's a treatment, not a cure, um, and that she felt quite under pressure. Sort of, it was obviously great news that she, she she's had two transplants now, but sort of having had the second one as an adult, um, lots of her friends and everything just sort of saw it as well. You don't have chronic kidney disease anymore. I suppose that aspect's true. Um, but there's still a you know decent burden of drugs that you have to take and monitoring. I wonder how you feel about that, you know, between or just about the public perception of it being a cure, maybe what we can do about that. Yeah, I think that's very true, and I think I think it's important that um, patients who are coming up to having a transplant are also aware of that. That it's not an operation that we then discharge you and you are never seen by the renal unit again. We're friends for life. Mm. Um, and I, I try and explain to that to people quite early on in their journey. I don't particularly yeah. like that either. Yeah, it's hard um, to find a different word. <laughs> um, is that even though they're having a transplant, they're not getting rid of me. They're getting rid of us. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so, so I, th- I think um, letting patients know that there will be that constant surveillance and, and, and keeping an eye on, on how they are doing I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but also I think the, the public perception in terms of the campaigns for organ donation is em- emphasising the, the gift of life, giving people back their lives, giving them normality. And, and it is giving them close to normality, but there is still the need for the drugs to suppress the immune system, other drugs that might be needed, and the requirement to attend hospital appointments. Yeah, and depending on the disease course, just constant monitoring of the graft to make sure it's still... Uh, yeah. doing okay yeah no it's tricky it's a hard and, balance to strike and and i know that that's um a big concern for patients as well they, they are conscious of the fact that although they're taking drugs to control their immune system there is always that possibility of rejection yeah. and and that's very hard for some people 
So what considerations do you have to make when finding a kidney that's a match? So we've probably heard the term match a lot, but what does that actually mean? So the, the matching for, for transplantation is looking at the similarity of tissue types between individuals. Um, so we're, we're all unique, um, and the diversity of tissue types is a, is a consequence of evolution to enable us to evade infection and, and prevent bacteria getting the upper hand. So tissue types are ex extremely variable between individuals. Um, so that, that's, that's very good to prevent bacteria getting the upper hand, um, but it's a big problem for transplantation when you're looking to have a transplant that's very similar in tissue type to you so that your immune system doesn't recognise that there is foreign material in you against which it needs to mount a, a reaction. Um, so we try and match closely for, for transplantation to, to avoid that immune stimulus. Um, the, the problem is that the immune system can be stimulated by a transplant, but it may have occurred previously with a blood transfusion or with a pregnancy. And so once your immune system has been exposed to foreign tissue types, it, it remembers that for a long, long time. So later in life, when we're looking at performing a, a transplant or a, a retransplant, there's often evidence that the immune system has developed a response to foreign tissue types which would react very quickly if a new transplant was put in with those tissue types. Right, so then that's an extra layer. It's not just a case of this patient needs a kidney, it's that they can't have this particular one because it's not a good enough match. Um, so, so we aim to have the, the good match so that you don't stimulate the immune system in the first place, but then later on you're trying to find the, the gaps in the immune response. So those tissue types that... that it, you're not recognising so that we can put a transplant in and have a, a good chance of it being accepted without this very aggressive immune response. And another unfortunate thing for women there as well, that yes. um, if you've had a pregnancy, which is probably the majority of women, yes. I know, it never ends the list of sort of yeah. disadvantages yeah. you get from yeah. that, does it? Yes. You know, one of the, the transplant patient I spoke to the other day said um, that she was, she was going to try and not have a transfusion. Yes. Um, and I just wonder how possible that is. I mean, I suppose if you need a transfusion, you need a transfusion. Um, yeah, we do. We, 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 are, we are conscious of the risks of, of transfusion um, and so um, consider them quite carefully. Um, there are circumstances in which the requirement can be life-threatening and so you'll, you don't have much choice, but um, we, we, we are careful with transfusions. Um, and there is some work going on now in, originating in London looking at matching um, tissue type blood transfusions so that you reduce the risk of sensitization. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, yeah. But it, that, again, that's another level of complexity to treatment. Yeah. And it's not as if there are organs and tissues everywhere where you mm. easily get matches anyway. So even if you were, um, even if you were a twin, yep. so sort of genetically identical, can you donate to each other without any problems or even then is there still a need to and um, so the first the first successful transplants were done between identical twins um because we, we we didn't have the immunosuppressive drugs to overcome the immune barriers so the first successful were were hla tissue type identical um we have become aware that there are non-hla so non-tissue type factors that might also stimulate the immune response and lead to rejection and some of those are acquired 
um, by by modifications as as you grow. So although the genetics will be identical, there may still be subtle differences in cell surface marker, which might be enough to stimulate the immune response. So even with genetically identical twins, we would tend to use some immunosuppression, at least initially following transplantation, but much, much less than in conventional transplants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about what the ITOPS study is, sort of what the purpose of what you're doing and what the purpose is. So ITOPS originated um, several years ago. Um, there was um, an exercise run by the James Lind Alliance of priority setting for, for various aspects of nephrology and other medical care. Um, one of these was done in transplantation. So it was looking at problems and priorities from both professional and patient groups for areas that were seen as high priority for, for research. And the, the, the priority setting exercise in transplantation came up with a, a list of 10 or so areas that were in need of research, um, one of which was management of sensitized patients. Um, so what happens in sensitization is that you make an immune response to those foreign tissue types, which then spreads to include many more tissue types than those initial, those that initially caused the, the, stim caused the stimulation. So you can end up with a range of antibodies against the majority of tissue types that are different to you. And then it becomes very difficult to identify um, a compatible transplant. Um, so we know in the waiting list in the UK about um, one in four people will be highly sensitised. So they have antibodies against more than 85% of the population. And, and the higher that percentage is, the more difficult it is to find a transplant. So these patients tend to wait a long time before a suitable transplant becomes available. And then the survival might not be as good because their immune system is so primed to recognize different kidneys. Um, so one of the um, means that we've avoided that in the UK is, is with the sharing scheme for living donors. So going back um, 10 years or so, if somebody had a, a living donor but they had antibodies against them, we would do additional treatment to allow that transplantation transplant to proceed. Um, we're now much more likely to use the sharing scheme to identify a compatible donor elsewhere. Um, but in deceased donor transplantation, it remains very, very difficult for these people to identify a transplant. So about four years ago, we had a, a national meeting to discuss the, the priorities for research projects in transplantation. Um, and ITOPS came out of that. Um, we designed a protocol to reduce antibody levels and therefore make it easier to find a transplant for patients um, based on public e publish published evidence of interventions that have been shown to help elsewhere. So there have been several small studies looking at reducing antibody levels and we looked at those and devised the protocol optimising all the existing information. Cool. And is, so is that treatment reducing all antibodies or is it targeted in any way? Um, so that's a good question. It, it generally reduces antibodies. Um, it doesn't reduce your overall antibody burden um, at, just by measuring total immunoglobulin. Those, those don't drop. 
but there is a proportionate drop in specific antibodies. Um, so the combination of, of treatment um, targets several points in the pathway for the development of antibodies. Um, so they're produced by plasma cells, um, and we give bortezomib, which inhibits plasma cell proliferation. And prior to each dose, we have a, a, a treatment with plasma exchange to remove the antibodies. Um, the removal of the antibody actually stimulates the plasma cell to make more. So by giving the bortezomib, then it increases its effectiveness. So the ISTOP study is aimed to reduce the tissue type antibodies in patients who are on the waiting list for a transplant who have very high levels of antibodies. Um, it's a combination of drugs together with plasma exchange to lower the antibodies and prevent them rising again over the next few months. Um, so a lot of the options for antibody removal just give you a very short window when the transplant can be done. But the aim with this combination of treatment is that the suppression of the antibody is much more long-lasting so that um, the, the window of opportunity for a transplant is, is longer. And we also hope that when the transplant is performed, you won't get a rebound of antibodies and rejection. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. No, that's great. I get that. Um, so what sort of... Um, I was reading on your study that it's called open label in the title. What does that mean? So open label means you will know if you've had the treatment or not. It's not a placebo-controlled trial. And what are the considerations behind that? Uh, so we thought, yeah, so um, there was a lot of discussion about this because the, the patients we're looking at will have been on the waiting list for several years, and so we will have several years of antibody results. And so if we then come in with an intervention, we should know if they've changed compared to their previous results. Um, but the, the recommendation of the reviewers was that we needed more robust evidence that this intervention was going to be successful. So they asked us to have two groups of patients who are in a similar situation. Half of them would receive the treatment and half of them would just continue with standard monitoring as, as we usually do. Um, and for me, that's been the hardest part of the trial. So um, although this isn't a, a proven treatment that will definitely lower antibody levels. Patients I approach about the trial are very, very keen to have some additional treatment to increase their chance. So they're quite well informed of the risks then and really understand that they, they have been sensitised and that they would like some sort of additional treatment to try and manage that. Um, they're all, they all obviously know they've waited a long time for a transplant. Um, interestingly, not everybody knows why that is. Um, so they, they don't know it's because of a situation with their antibodies. Um, so, but they are, the, the patients I've spoken to um, have all been very keen to receive additional treatment that might make it easier for them to re receive a transplant. Um, so um, counselling people about the risks of the, the, the treatment and then finding with the randomisation that they're in the group who won't be receiving any more treatment has actually been the hardest mm. part because yeah. you've sort of built up people's hopes and then you're saying not now although the hope is that we are able to show that there's benefit and they might be able to benefit from this in the future what i'm hoping from the study is that we we show 
we would show a positive result and then people in this situation in the future we've got the evidence to support them being given the treatment would would be my hope um, if we find that this isn't an effective treatment then equally people won't be exposed to the risk of it in the future so i think it's important to know either way if it yeah, totally. if it if it, if it works um, we obviously had patient involvement with setting the study up um, and when i spoke to the patient group beforehand and said how do you feel about this randomization to treatment or no treatment um, they very much felt that well you need to know definitely either way and so if this is what you need to do it's what you need to do so that's yeah. why we went with the trial model yeah um but in practice it, it it is difficult to say we have a potential intervention but you're in the control group yeah signing someone up to a trial to then tell them I guess from their feeling, they're not really taking part if you're not getting the treatment. It's yeah, and they're, they're taking part because we're 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 closely monitoring their antibodies, um, and and they're very that that information is very valuable. Um, but it, I think it, I think it is difficult to be told about a potential treatment which you're then not hmm. receiving. So yeah. I I do try quite hard to emphasise that at the beginning that that although I'm talking about what what a treatment that might help there's only a one in two chance that you will be getting it does that does that people put people off do you think um it, it hasn't put anybody off um in cardiff right. in in taking part okay so how many people are you looking to recruit and how far along are you with that um so we were hoping to recruit 38 people um between cardiff bristol and leeds so three recruiting centers um we have 24 recruited so far so another 14 or so to go. And how long are you doing follow-up for? So we're hoping to finish recruitment in June and the follow-up is for a year. Um, so in terms of the antibodies, they're monitored um, every four weeks and we look at the 12-week point to see whether there's been a change in the antibodies. Um, when you're waiting for a transplant, um, your details are registered with NHS Blood and Transplant together with any antibodies you have so that you are not offered a kidney that has that tissue type. Um, we look at 12 weeks to see if we can remove any of those antibody specificities, which would then op open up the chance of receiving more offers. Um, and then we, we carry on monitoring the antibodies every four weeks for a year. So the primary assess point, assessment point is at 12 weeks but the year's worth of data will enable us to see how long-lasting the change in antibody levels are. I only know what's happening in Cardiff. I don't have the results from Bristol and Leeds. Um, so it will be interesting at the end of the study to look at what's happened everywhere. Yeah, and get that power. Yeah. Um, cool. So that's a, that sounds really promising. That could be a really promising treatment and really help more organs be available I guess. Yeah I hope so people. and the one, one interesting thing that's happened in in the last few months is the donor allocation scheme has changed in the UK um, which has a, had a very beneficial effect for sensitised patients which is great um, but not so good for the study recruitment. Uh, why is that? So um, previously um, the HLA match was very important for allocation um, whereas the aim in the new system has been to make the waiting time much more even across different patient groups. 
Right. So highly sensitised patients, particularly those who've waited a long time for a transplant, are given a lot more of priority when a transplant becomes available. Um, so that's been very good for some of these patients who have waited for more than five years for, for a transplant. If you could improve one thing in clinic or sort of in your in your interaction with patients, if there's one thing you could do for them, I suppose apart from being able to just give them an instant kidney match, what would you really like to improve? What I'd really like to do um, is, um, I mean, assuming I assuming we don't have the laboratory facilities to use stem cells to grow a new kidney that's a perfect match for somebody which probably not all that far away yeah hopefully not that far away so i think the potential of the um extracorporeal perfusion of kidneys is 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 fantastic and i think the um the the assessments that have been so, so a kidney that's been retrieved for transplantation that's being assessed on on a piece of equipment outside the body for um, how well it's likely to to work when it's transplanted. I think the the potential for altering that kidney to make it a closer tissue type match for the recipient is is is, is not beyond the scope of of our ability. So is that why you'd sort of fuse it with enzymes to cleave away antigens? Like what? I've not I've not really heard about how this. Well, I even I mean I i even I even wondered if you could do something with the 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 CRISPR genetic manipulation technique so you could manipulate it to remove the HLA type it's currently expressing and introduce the HLA type of the recipient yeah. so that you've converted it yeah. to a perfect match. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that would be cool actually yeah no, that would be really, really cool. yeah, that'd be awesome. I remember seeing it a few <laughs> years ago the whole um and they're developing, uh, I think they did it with heart first, that sort of stripping to get back to the sort of bare bones like the ECM or the whatever of an organ and then planting that with. But this would be a, this would be a much, so you just perfuse it and then go in with your CRISPR. That, yeah, that would be really... Take out take out all the HLA types and splice in the HLA type of the yeah, recipient. That would be awesome. So, so I was thinking about that. So I thought, um, um, because every, all the interventions we do at the moment in transplantation are to the recipient, so we manipulate the immune system, but we do have an opportunity coming where we can manipulate the kidney. And I thought that, that would be good, so we can avoid the tissue type mismatch. Um, but there, it, that, it, that, it's not going to end there because there are mismatches between an awful lot of other molecules right, expressed right. in the kidney. So we'd solve the HLA problem and then we'd yeah. find that we ha- still had antibodies made to a lot of other determinants. Yeah. I mean, but uh, the HLA is the big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of research, isn't it? You solve what is the biggest problem and then immediately there's just by the nature of the next problem is the biggest problem. So, And yeah. I think there's probably still potential in xenocrafts. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, and could you talk us through that a and bit? Ag- again with um, CRISPR technology, um, yeah, so and and hu- humanising organs. Um, I mean, I'm, I, it, it, it's not my particular. Well, it's not my area of expertise at all, actually. But um, I, I know there were a lot of prior difficulties with xenotransplantation that 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 that, that CRISPR and gene editing might make more possible. Yeah, I think I might be having a bit of a read about that this evening. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Um, have you read much about um, uh, Melissa Little's work from Australia? Yes. And growing the organoids? Yes. So, I mean, it's mad. It's it's crazy, you know. Um, I suppose, what would it have been? Uh, eight years ago, I was at a conference in America, and there was a guy who was printing 
yep. kidneys just by putting different cells into what would be the different colour on an inkjet printer. Um, and to get to the point now, I mean, that, that, you know, what Melissa Little's doing would have been a complete pipe dream for most of us back then. So she can um, she can take a skin biopsy and then change that just sort of mm. <laughs> everyday cell into an induced polypotent stem cell and guide that lineage. I think they got to the point of they, had, they, they can perfuse the organoids by plumbing them into the circulation of a chicken's egg. And then that sort of sheer stress on the cells forces develop the development sort of even further. I mean, I suppose if if they got to the point of being able to grow a kidney, I'm I mean at that point, chronic kidney disease would become an inconvenience. It'd be we're gonna have to grow you a new kidney. It'll take, I don't know, what would it take? Six weeks? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It, yeah. It's not. It doesn't sound as ludicrous as it sounded mm. a few years mm. ago. That it, to have yeah, sort of organ failure is an inconvenience rather than a, um, a you know life changing yeah, diagnosis. Mean, that hopefully it would be you're going to feel pretty ill for six weeks, um, but then we'll have a new kidney and it'll be your kidney. What sort have there been any big developments during your career that you think have really pushed the field on and been really helpful? Mm-hmm. And equally, if not, you know how has that been? Has that been frustrating? Oh, I, I'm. I suppose one of the most frustrating things is our lack of personalization in immunosuppression and being more clear about what doses of which drugs we need to use for patients and having a more sophisticated way of monitoring their immunosuppression um, that would be very helpful. I think still in encouraging patients to to have an understanding of their illness I still think we've got a long way to go with that um, so that's one of the things that we're trying to address with the podcast. The sort of thinking being that um, different people like taking information in in different ways, and that a podcast can be quite passive for someone to listen to while they're washing up or um, you know on the bus to work. Um, so sort of fitting in around pe- you know people's busy lives. Um, do you think it's that the information? Are we good enough at engaging as a research community with patients? Do you think it's that some patients just don't want to know? Maybe sort of. I don't want to say head in the sand because it's not that they're ignorant, but just that maybe they feel that they don't have the power to do anything about it. So, you know, why know about it? I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. I think it comes down again to the, for transplantation, the message for the public. So if, if somebody's given a diagnosis of cancer, a lot of the publicity about cancer is to donate to Cancer Research UK. We can only beat this with more research. Um, cancer is common. Most people know many people who have had cancer of some form and they know that research is needed to improve outcomes and the whole public mentality is geared towards research and making progress. I I don't think kidney disease has that same profile and I think the 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 organ donation campaigns have been have been fantastic and the the increasing numbers of families who feel able to consent for deceased donation and the number of people who've who've signed up themselves on the 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 donor register that that is a a fantastic public response to that but i think the the message is that you you have a transplant that's it you're 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 cured coming back to 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 the beginning of our conversation and that, that there isn't the same appreciation of the need for for research for progress yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. 
So I, I, I often try and think, how could we make it that people aren't scared as soon as you start talking science? Um, you know, I feel like as humans, we're all natural scientists. Everyone doing is doing experiments in their everyday life, sort of wondering, is this way to work quicker than that way, or you know, is this better than that? Um, so I don't know what it is that's putting people off science, mm. but if we could, at a public level, sort of engage people a bit better. Yeah, and I think I think, and it starts right back in primary school. Um, when children are curious about about their bodies, about the environment, about climate change, about all of these really practical, the science that's in front of us, talking about that more than perhaps the structure of a plant cell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, uh, as it happens, my little boy at nursery is having a science day today. Uh, he's too and you're here. Too Why aren't you there? I, I did like sort of drop a hint when I dropped it off. Like, if you need any help, <laughs> well, I'm not sure how much use I would have been. <laughs> Show him a bit of PCR. And I think I think having the the right people going out and communicating science as well. So there are some people who are fantastic communicators about the excitement of science and research, and having them going out to the the people to to do it. Yeah. Um, just to finish off, I'd just like to ask people, if you get any spare time, what, what do you like to do? Um, <laughs> spare time, here. Yeah. Well, I've got three children um, who, who I love to bet, so it's, it's great to be able to spend time with them doing things. Um, and I hang out with my husband from time to time as well. Um, yeah. um, I like cooking. Um, and I do go ballroom dancing once a week. Okay, nice. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, yeah no, spare time is funny, isn't it? Yeah, so... What do you like to do? You're like, I can't remember. Hello, <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Great. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. I certainly learned a lot about, I learned a lot about rejection um, and the sort of considerations that go into performing a kidney transplant. It's really nice to get into that sort of chat towards the end with Sean about where we think science is going. Um, really, really enjoyed that. Lots and lots of reading to do now to try and see how feasible some of those things are and write our grants and get them in. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sean. As ever, please check out our Facebook page, which is the Keep It Renal podcast. Um, feel free to leave any messages there, get in touch with myself, um, and just basically give us a bit of feedback. Tell us how we're doing. Tell us the sort of things you'd like to hear. Um, anyway, until the next time, take care. Goodbye.